Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and, we're, and in the Black Pew Bible, if you're using that Bible, and it's easier for you, just turn to page 1,323, page 1,323, and that's going to bring you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What if a close friend of yours, or a neighbor, or perhaps even a relative, what if they started asking questions about God? Maybe they have a close family member who passes away, or their life is somehow spiraling out of control, whatever that might mean, but they begin opening up about eternal matters. Maybe it's your granddaughter, or your granddaughter's husband or fiancé. What would you say to a sincere question like, how do you know there is a God? Uh, how about evolution and science? How is it that Jesus was God? Is the Bible even still accurate? How do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? Now, of course, you and I believe all of these things that, are, that they're true. And because we do, they bring strength and confidence and direction and hope to our lives. <clears throat> now, of course, we believe the Bible is true and wise and authoritative. We believe Jesus is our Savior and that there is a good and wise God that is guiding and directing our lives. And because of that, it brings confidence, it brings hope. We don't dread about the future, ultimately. We have important things that we need to be doing in this life. The way I treat people is hugely important. My eternity is safe in his hands. This is the kind of big questions of life that God answers for us, and it brings this underlying strength to our lives. It doesn't mean that Christians don't have problems or that Christians don't struggle with issue, the issues of life. Obviously, we do. Life is hard in many ways, and none of us have all of the answers, but underneath that, underneath the, the ups and downs of life, there is a, a bedrock of faith founded upon the very words of God. And uh, of these things, we can be sure and confident. Really, the word hope in the Bible is more of like assurance or confidence. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think, you know, the Lord added those la that last phrase for the 21st century America. <laughs> really, the world, right? Uh, the... Uh, do it, talk about your faith, talk about why you believe what you believe with gentleness and respect. So the word in this verse, the word defense or answer, it is the Greek word apologia, from which we get our word apologetics. And apologetics is simply giving reasons why you believe the things that you believe, that you have good reason for your faith. And apologetics is a very important topic for every Christian. Paul used it 
uh, in the Bible, and, and others use it. And it's an important topic, especially in today's world, for high school students and college students. Do I really believe what I've always been told all my life? And the power of the gospel and the Bible, the strength of it is that it holds up under scrutiny and, and examination. People have been examining and scrutinizing the Bible for thousands of years. Uh, you, you know, I could mention names that maybe are familiar to some of us, like Lee Strobel, who's right here, was from right here in the Chicagoland area, or Anthony Flew, who was the leading atheistic atheist intellectual of the last 70 years, or Dr. Dr. Francis Collins, who led the Genome Project, or Stephen Meyer, or Frank Morrison, or C.S. Lewis. All of these were highly intellectual people who uh, came to faith in, G in, in God because of what they understood about life and science and reason and logic and, of course, the Bible. How many, I wonder if there's anyone here today that attended or perhaps graduated from Lou Wallace High School over in Gary. Anyone graduate from Lou Wallace? I mean, it's a very historic school. I'm, it's actually not there, I don't think, anymore. But okay, well, it's a very prominent high school in northwest Indiana for, you know, decades. But does anyone know why it's called Lou Wallace High School? Who was Lou Wallace? Well, let me just share a little bit of that, okay? Uh, Lou Wallace was from Crawfordsville, Indiana. He was a very intelligent person, highly educated. He was a literary genius, and uh, he wrote one of the greatest of all American novels, Ben-Hur. And he was a literary genius. And, of course, we all know that everyone from Indiana is highly intelligent. We all know that, of course, right? Wouldn't you agree? <clears throat> <laughs> Lou Wallace, after serving with great distinction as a military general in the Union Army, he, he, was, uh, he was asked by the governor of the state of Indiana to form six regiments of Indiana regular military men. He ended up forming 12 by his own, his own efforts, 12 regiments. Eventually, after the war, he was appointed to be the governor of New Mexico. He was highly intelligent, a genius person, but he was also pretty much an agnostic or an atheist. Um, and I know you thought that all Hoosiers were children of God, but that's not completely accurate all the time, right? He wasn't. He scoffed at the idea of Jesus and God. Uh, the idea that God had, that Jesus had risen from the dead. The only problem that he had with his atheism is that he was married to a devout Christian lady who was very devout, and it, 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 it bothered him. It aggravated him, her faith and the sincerity of her faith. Finally, he decided, for the sake of his own marriage and just to be at peace with, with his own wife, he was going to research and debunk Christianity, and he was going to write a book destroying, once and for all, the Christian faith. And that's what he set out to do. For two years, he traveled all over Europe and America to the, most, the largest, most famous libraries doing his research. And he began to write this book, debunking the resurrection, debunking the Christian faith, the, the truth of Jesus Christ. He got to chapter 2, and he converted to Christianity. He later said it was the book that refused to be written. 
And he became a devout follower of Jesus Christ while he was in the midst of studying all of the evidence for the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel. The evidence, and as a matter of fact, this morning, we're going to look at some of the very same evidence that Lou Wallace examined over 100 years ago. And some of the facts that led him to believe. He set out on one path. He's very intentional of of destroying Christianity, and he ended up very quickly becoming a Christian. And he said, these are his words, he said, After years given to the impartial investigation of Christianity as to its truth or falsity, I have come to the deliberate conclusion that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of the Jews, the Savior of the world, and my own personal Redeemer. So let's look at this, and we're going to give a brief apologetic of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is a study that you, we're just going to barely gloss over, that you can do more thoroughly on your own. As a matter of fact, we're kind of winding down our series on reasons for hope. Uh, next Sunday, uh, J.D. Schmucker is going to bring you the, the, the final message in our series on the trustworthiness of the Bible. I wanted to share with you because this is just to whet your taste buds. And these are things that you can study and research for hours, and it's very interesting. And, and one of the books that I use is by William Lane Craig, this book called On Guard. He's written several books on apologetics and on the Christian faith, but this one called On Guard was specifically written for high school students and college students. And so uh, it's called On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision, William Lane Craig. That's one of the resources I use. And this is another very well-known resource. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And it was written by Norman Geisler, one of the, the most well-known theologians of our day, Norman Geisler, and another famous apologist, Frank Turek. Frank Turek has loads of videos on YouTube uh, sharing, you know, different aspects of apologetics. And those are two books that you could continue to study on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our text for today, it is really the definitive chapter on the resurrection in all of the Bible. Not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but our resurrection as well, and, and how it pertains to the whole gospel message. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important that in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and, listen now, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, you can't be saved if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're not a true believer you're not a saved person if you deny that Christ rose again from the dead. It's part and parcel of the gospel. So again, in chapter 15, in the first few verses, Paul is laying out his own apologetic. He's giving evidences why the Corinthian believers and the other Corinthians can trust in the resurrection. And so we see in verse 1, he says, So moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received. I preached it, you heard it, then you received it, you believed it, you internalized it, and you made it your own. 
and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So it is possible to give mental assent to the gospel and to Jesus. It's, it's possible to hear and understand the, the points of the gospel without truly committing yourself to Jesus Christ. And that would mean to believe in vain. So we, we all have to examine our own hearts and make doubly sure that our faith is genuine, saving faith. So let's give the first evidence, the number one evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the first one is the fact that there were believers in Corinth. I mean, this is a very pagan city. There were, uh, but yet in spite of the, the rampant paganism, they knew nothing of Jesus. And in spite of all of that, within a few short months, now you have this group who had believed Paul's message. The Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the body, the human body. They didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. The Romans did not believe in any kind of resurrection. It was the opposite of their concepts of spirituality. The Greeks saw the, the physical body as rather deplorable. They saw the human spirit as being enslaved, in, in, incarcerated in the physical body, and they were hoping to be freed from the body. They were not interested in the body being resurrected. So this was not any kind of mindset they would, they would have already had. Even many of the Jewish people did not believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees, which would be like the opposite of the Pharisees, the Sadducees were materialists. Materialist. They denied the resurrection. Yet in spite of all of that, contrary to their own culture and beliefs, Paul preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and in believing that message, their lives were totally transformed. You see, that's the first evidence, uh, is the existence of Christians in Corinth. And I would add, in the world. Because he says, I preach a counter-cultural message that you were not naturally inclined to even believe, yet you received it. And you stand in it, you've been saved by it. And I, like I said, not just in Corinth, but all around the world. St. <laughs> Patrick, if you want to call him a saint, his name was Pat Patricius. He was Roman British. He went to Ireland, and Ireland wasn't Catholic. Ireland was pagan. They were Druids. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the solstice. They were in, they were in complete darkness. So how is it that a simple message about a, a poor, itinerant Jewish preacher being crucified, how does that simple message have the power to transform an entire nation or an entire culture? Because he rose from the dead. The fact that there are, in the world today, 2.3 billion people around the world who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is very significant. Christianity is the largest religion in the world by a lot. 31% of the world population. Did you know there's only 7% only of the world population calls themselves atheists? Only 7%. 
Now you get the impression, I think that 7% is pretty loud mouth because they kind of dominate the, the public discourse sometimes. Most of those are in communist countries like China. So it's not definitive proof that there's lots of Christians in the world, but it is significant. How do you account for that? Do you believe in the gospel? Well, inherent in the gospel is a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, a dead Savior can't save anyone. A dead Savior can't transform a culture, and it can't transform a human heart. What can transform is a guy who died and then got back up and walked out of that grave, which means he conquered death. And if he can conquer death, then he has the power to do anything else that he promises. So if he promises that he can transform a human heart, then he can, and he certainly will, if that heart surrenders to him. And a strong evidence for the resurrection is the rapid spread of the early church. And the, the resurrection and the miracles that Paul and the apostles did must, must have happened in order for people to convert in such mass over such a short period of time. And this is the first evidence. The rapid existence of Christians in Corinth and in so many churches and believers throughout Asia Minor and the Roman Empire, literally around the known world. We see the, the second evidence is the prediction of the resurrection that's found in the Old Testament scriptures. Paul says here in our text, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Twice, he refers back to the Old Testament text as his basis, the Scriptures. Why? Because, whether you've thought about this recently or not, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is clearly foretold in the Old Testament. What Old Testament Scriptures predicted his death? I think this is a, a good thought to have as we enter into the Easter season. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that uncannily describes the death and crucifixion, death by crucifixion, literally hundreds of years before it even existed. You read that psalm, and you can, it doesn't take, um, it doesn't take an apologist, it doesn't take an, a hyper, a super intellectual person I believe that any Christian child or young person in our church could read Psalm 22 and outline for you all of the points that refer back to death by crucifixion. It is that clear to any honest, sincere person. But yet it was written hundreds of years before the Persians would invent crucifixion and it would later be adopted by the Romans. Psalm 22 predicts his death as our text says, that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Can you think of another Old Testament passage that describes for us or predicts how the Messiah would suffer and die? 
Certainly, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 come to our minds because in graphic detail, they show a suffering Messiah, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was laid upon his back. By his stripes, we are healed. And so uh, Isaiah is another prophetic passage about how Jesus would die. And Paul was referring to that as an evidence. Isaiah 53 even goes on, as Paul said, that he would be buried according to the Scriptures. And Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would be buried along with the rich, just like it was fulfilled in the Gospels. But wait a minute, let's, here's, a, here's a harder one. This one might stump us. What about his resurrection? That Jesus would, would not stay in the grave, but that he would come back alive. Where is that foretold in the Old Testament? Now, there are actually probably three passages we could look at, but the most obvious one is found in Psalm 16. And Peter knew, the Apostle Peter knew Psalm 16. He was a good Jewish uh, preacher. He knew Psalm 16. And when he preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he brought up Psalm 16 in his message to his audience in Jerusalem. Now, in my version, I'm reading from the New King James and that I preach from every week. And in my version, it says, David writes, because you will not abandon me in the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. That's, that's the New King James. Although I, I often quote from the, the, new, the English Standard, the ESV, which is very similar to the New King James. And um, a very good translation. Of course, Peter was using the old KJV, right? I mean, obviously, he was old. He goes way back there, right? No, no, he wasn't using the old KJ. It didn't quite exist for a couple thousand more years. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is kind of a sidebar. It really, I mean, there are good, reliable translations like, you know, the NIV, the ESV, the New King James, the King James. What really is important is that we be, we're reading the Bible. Okay, that's the important part. Let's just read the Bible. So over these next uh, several weeks, as we begin thinking about Resurrection Sunday, read your Bible. I encouraged you last week as a devotional exercise to be reading through the Gospel of John over the next month and a half. I would add to that, read the 22nd Psalm. Put a bookmark in it. Put a bookmark in Isaiah 52 and 53 and read it. Read it every day. Read it every week. Read it. And, and you know what? If you want to, research the death by crucifixion, and appreciate again what your Lord suffered for on your behalf, and allow your heart and your affections to be drawn to our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fall, in, in, in this Easter season, fall in love with Jesus all over again. And if you do that, it doesn't really matter if you're reading those passages in the NIV or the ESV or whatever. 
But Peter, in his sermon about the resurrection in Acts 2, he quoted Psalm 16. And he says there that David wrote, But you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And he explains what that means. And and Peter says David wasn't talking about himself when he spoke these words. David was looking into the future, and he was predicting the Messiah's resurrection. And if you know anything about that sermon, Peter said basically to them, he said, I can prove that David was not talking about himself because right here is his grave. And David is still dead. He's still in that grave. So if you're not going to let the body of your Holy One decay in the grave, then obviously he's not talking about himself because David is still in the grave. So what was David referring to in Psalm 16? My friend, you and I know he was referring to the greater son of David who would come, the Messiah who would be a royal descendant of David. David didn't write Psalm 16 as a personal story about himself. He wrote it as a prophetic statement. Psalm 16 is a messianic prophecy that Jesus rose again according to Old Testament scriptures. And there are others that we could look at, but quickly I want to show you the third evidence for the resurrection that we're going to look at today. And, and you know, evidence isn't necessarily proof. This is the thing that we, and, I, and I've mentioned this before, when you're thinking about apologetics, and, you know, Paul's using it here. Peter used it when he preached on, on the day of Pentecost. He gave reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead, and one of the reasons that Peter used was Old Testament prophecy, right? So he's, he, they were doing exactly what we're doing. If you I'm giving you a lot of homework assignments today. I I just am in that professorly mood. You know, you can thank me later. Acts 17. Acts 17 is the quintessential example of a, a minister of the gospel using apologetics to speak to unbelieving people. Because there, Paul, Paul went to Athens, Greece, And he went to the most uh, secular, or I should say the most um, idolatrous place in the whole city. He went to Mars Hill. And 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 it was a gathering place where all they did was gather to talk about religion, all the religions, all of their gods, or to talk about their philosophies. And all of the variant philosophies of the Greek and Roman world, they were all openly discussed in this public plaza. Paul went there. And he began to reason with them and talk to them about this unknown God who he said he appealed to creation. Just, he used the cosmological argument. He said, the God that you have here, a, a memorial to the unknown God, the one who created everything that you see and know. And then he, then he used the moral law argument. He said, the one... Uh, in whom we move, in whom we have our very being. You read that passage, it is so powerful. It is so powerful. Paul didn't, he didn't use John 3.16. Do you know why he didn't use John 3.16? Because they had never heard the name of Jesus. They didn't know about a cross or a burial or a resurrection. They didn't know about that yet. 
So he appealed to what their thoughts were, and he appealed to the creation around him. It's, it's an apologetical sermon, <laughs> and it's really interesting if you read it, Acts 17. But I, I, what I started to say with all of that is, it's not like there's proof, absolute, undeniable proof for God or Jesus or the Bible. No, that, and there doesn't have to be. What there is, is evidence and evidences. And this is the way, this is the way decisions are made every day all around the world. For example, right here in America, our whole entire justice system is based upon a preponderance of evidence. Evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And so you have, you know, judges, they're very studied. We assume that they're pretty bright most of the time, hopefully. And so that they can reason, and they can use logic, and they can hear stories and witnesses and evidences. And then when it's overwhelming, you can make a decision that you're, you're 99.9% sure this is what happened because of all of the evidence. How many witnesses do you need in a court of law to show that something is beyond, the, 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 perhaps the strongest evidence that there is in a court of law is, are eyewitnesses. So how many eyewitnesses have to coincide in the same story before you really begin to believe that's really what happened? Would it take three? Would it take four, six? Oh, I think, I don't, I think just about any judge around, if he has four or six people that maybe weren't even together, they were just like scattered around. They're not like comparing stories, they're just telling their story, and all six of them agree? My friend, that's more than enough evidence to show that something is true. Six is more than enough. But what about the resurrection? How about 513? 513 people that saw it, that gave testimony to it. We see that here in our text in verse 5. He says, And he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep. Paul says that many of those 500 are still around today when Paul was writing. You can actually go to them and interview them yourself. You can talk to them. That's what Paul was telling the Corinthians. They're still alive, many of them. Some of them have fallen asleep. They've, they've passed away. They've died. And then in verse 7, he goes on, And after that, he was seen by James, and then by all of the apostles. And then later, Paul says, I saw him myself. Right? So you start getting into some of these stories, and they're pretty powerful. The James that's mentioned here, I, I believe, and, and many scholars, you know, you would have to look at it closely, but many scholars believe that this was the, there's three Jameses in the Gospels, okay? So you have to kind of discern which one it would have been. Many scholars believe that this would have been the half-brother of Jesus. And, and I talked about him last week. He was, he didn't believe in Jesus. Because he was Jesus' half-brother. He said, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you just go yourself, show yourself publicly? No one does these works secretly if you're really the Messiah. His whole uh, family, his brothers and sisters, they chided him when he was in his ministry. But now the same one who doubted him 
now James believes in him. Why does now all of a sudden James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem? So, so it's like total 180. What caused that? It was seeing Jesus after the resurrection that convinced him. And so we see here, beyond that, there was 500 people. And that's a sizable group of eyewitness testimony of whom the greater part are present today. Let me just close with this. When would that event have occurred? You can look at these events like when, when Peter ran to the tomb and saw him. The 12 were in that room uh, and Jesus appeared to them. And so we, we, we see some of the appearances. When would Jesus have appeared to 500 people? Now this is You know, you, can, uh, you have to look into this and kind of try to sort it out and figure it out. But there was one location that was announced. Many of the appearances of Jesus were not announced. He just showed up in front of his disciples. Or he showed up to the ladies at the tomb, the women at the tomb. But there was one occasion when Jesus told them. He said, and the angel told them, go to Galilee. He will meet you where he said And, and so they, they went back to Galilee, right? And it's very likely, in all probability, it would have been on that occasion when they, the word got out, and when Jesus appeared in Matthew chapter 28, he appeared in Galilee, that's where the 500 witnesses were. And what did he tell those 500 witnesses? What did he tell the disciples there in Matthew 20? He said, all authority has been given unto me, Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what he said to his followers. My friend, if, if uh, we, along with them, have been told to go into all of the world and to talk about these things. Paul said, when he was found out, James, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul He says in, the, in where we read in our text, he labored more than all. He labored in the gospel. My friend, one of the reactions, when you believe the evidence, when you believe in Jesus, the natural response is to go and to serve and to carry the gospel and to spread the message. It's very, the story of St. Patrick is very powerful. He was enslaved by these By the, in Ireland, he was enslaved there in a dark land. And he escaped from his captors, and the gospel, when he believed in the gospel, it was so powerful in his heart and life, he went back to the very people he, who had enslaved him. He went back to carry the gospel message. That is very powerful. That is very powerful. He believed it with all of his heart, Because he had experienced it in his heart. And it so transformed his, his life that he, he surrendered his life to serve others in carrying the gospel. And that certainly should be the reaction of every single one of us.